And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the phone line with us today is Pastor Ben Miller. He pastors Trinity Church, an OPC congregation in North Central Long Island. And Pastor Ben, it's great to have you with us today. Good to be back, Dan. Thank you. You know, this is a time of year when uh, there's a lot of focus on government and America. And there's a lot of Christians that are concerned, upset, you know, as we look at the political landscape. And there's even some folks that perhaps think, oh, that's that's like dirty. Politics is dirty. I don't want anything to do with that. So let's talk about this whole uh, whole topic today, Ben. I know that you uh, recently did a series at your church um, that, that intersected with this theme. So maybe you can get us started today. Well, actually, this uh, my interest in this topic... Um, actually goes all the way back to my law school days before seminary, but uh, some years ago in the, in the ministry, I was really hit hard by um, Isaiah's statement to the discouraged nation of Israel that what Zion needs to hear is that our God reigns. <laughs> right? God reigns. And and I just began to th- think about that, and, and, and actually back in 2008 preached the sermon series about the kingdom of God, and... Um, it began to, to open up to me that the Bible, if you really want to sum up what the Bible is about in, in a sentence, it's about the kingdom of God. In fact, it, it really dawned on me at one point that when Jesus arrives and, and the, the Gospels say that he is preaching the, the good news, he is preaching the good news of the kingdom. Mm. Uh, so so that for, for Jesus, the kingdom of God, the reign of God, the politics, of God, if you like, is the good news. And in fact, if, if, if you ask a, a Christian what is the gospel, and you never hear any mention of the kingdom, you have to wonder if maybe there's a somewhat uh, deficient understanding of even what the good news is. The good news is that God reigns, and he reigns over the world through Christ. And mm-hmm. so um, I started sort of digging through the scriptures with this more, and um, I, this sort of chain, this set of, of links emerged throughout the Bible where, you know, at the very beginning, creation is God's kingdom. I, they could call that the paradise kingdom, and then what uh, Gerard von Groningen calls the parasite kingdom of, of Satan and his lies enters and kind of gets the feed off of that kingdom and, and destroy it from, from within. And then uh, with Noah and Abraham and the patriarchs, there's a promised kingdom um, of that, that God's going to set up his kingdom again on earth, and eventually with Moses and much more fully with David and Solomon, that becomes the preparatory kingdom, kind of this model kingdom in Israel, and then that kingdom starts to fall apart because of disobedience. Then you have the prophesied kingdom. Eventually you have the permanent kingdom that arises, Jesus himself, and um, we look for the perfected kingdom um, in time. And, and actually, I later discovered that a, a fellow named Vaughn Roberts had written a book called God's Big Picture and, and had a very similar outline. And so I'm just kind of digging through the, the scriptures with this, and I'm very, very excited about that. And then... Um, more recently, I, I've been doing a lot of reading about sort of the uh, historical understanding of, of how Jesus' kingdom is worked out. Um, I should probably mention, too, I believe very clearly from Scripture that we are, we are living in Jesus' kingdom, um, that we're not looking for a, his second coming to, to inaugurate that kingdom, but that he did inaugurate it when he came and gave his life on the cross and was resurrected and, and ascended to the Father's right hand and now reigns, as the Scripture says, over all things. So we're, we're living in that kingdom. And I've been doing some reading and, and studying about how what we call the Reformers, men like 
you know, John Calvin and Martin Luther and others, um, early Protestants, worked out the understanding of how Jesus' kingdom comes in the world. Um, and, and this just it really began to be very exciting to me, as I began to just have more of a sense of how, then, the, the kingdom of Christ relates to the kingdoms of this world, including our own United States. And, um, you know, these can be very discouraging times as you look around at what's happening in the American political scene. Um, and, and so, you know, if, if you'd like, I, I could just sort of lay out a bit of what I've developed in these sermons um, and, and kind of just talk about um, both the biblical and historical understanding of, of, of how Christ's kingdom um, you know, works out in, in real time and real nations and, and, and uh, you know, the real life that we're living. Is, is that, uh, would that be helpful? Oh, oh, sure. That would be wonderful. And um, um, we've got maybe about 20 minutes, so, um, so I, I know it's going to be hard to shoehorn everything into that, <laughs> but at least you can give it a try. That's a big topic. Um, yeah. Well, f- first of all, um, one of the things that you'll sometimes hear um, in, in historical studies uh, of, of how the, the Reformers thought about God's kingdom, Christ's kingdom in particular, is you'll hear the phrase, two kingdoms. And, and um, unfortunately, there's been, some, I think, some real misunderstanding of what they were trying to say by using that phrase, two kingdoms. Um, what, what they were trying to get at is something I think is deeply biblical, which is that God's, God's kingdom, we, we need to think about God's reign in the world, um, as something that is, in its essence, is invisible, but that in its effects is, is very much visible. Um, and, and so when they talked about the two kingdoms, they weren't talking about two visible kingdoms. They were talking about the invisible kingdom of God, the invisible reign of God, as it expresses itself then visibly in a couple of, of different profiles. And so... I think that's important because it's interesting. I, I, um, in, in Daniel, uh, the, in Daniel's prophecy, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar has that famous dream about the image of gold and the head of gold, which represents Babylon, and the you know the chest of silver, and on down, kind of representing the the, the major Gentile political powers. There, there comes this point in the dream where this stone that is it's described that it's been cut out of a mountain without hands, and so it's 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 cut out of this mountain that is somehow completely removed from the realm of these earthly kingdoms. It's cut out without any hands. It's kind of this invisible power that brings it, and it smashes into the feet of the, this mighty image of, of the Gentile powers, and it, it, it smashes them to powder, and it be, this tiny stone becomes a mountain that fills the entire earth. And, and I think that that's, that's one text that shows us that when we think about God's rule in the world, it is not something that's visible. <laughs> God is spirit, and the way he rules is spiritually, and, and he, he rules invisibly, and, and, and he, he, he comes and he, he does, in Christ, he does this fundamental, awesome work of destroying the power of Satan. I mean, he did that invisibly. What, what you saw was the cross. What was happening was the crushing of the serpent's head, right? And, 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 and sort of in that, that climactic act of, act of, of Jesus you know, laying the foundations of his kingdom in this world. It's this, it's this mighty spiritual invisible encounter between the power of God, the reign of God, and the, you know, the, pretend, the, the pretending parasitic kingdom of, of the evil one. And so, um, you know, that, that's an example of the invisibility of, of, of God's kingdom at its essence. And, of course, the way that God rules in human hearts is not something you... You see the effects of it, but you don't see the movements of the Spirit. The Spirit blows where it wills. And so, you know, Christ conquered invisibly, and, and the Spirit moves in us invisibly, but, but there's this... Now, why is that important? Well, that means that, 
That means there's nowhere in the there's nowhere in the world you can go and say, well, there is the kingdom. Uh, because if, if there were some place you could go in the world and say, there is the kingdom in its essence, visi- you know, it's, it's visible, it's tangible, then, you know, the idea would almost be like you could somehow tangibly control it, right? You, you, it would be within our realm, <laughs> within our reach, within our grasp. And, and the glorious thing about God's kingdom is that because it is not in our grasp, it is not from below, it is not from this world, Jesus said, it is from heaven, it is invisible, it is beyond the reach of all human power and manipulation, it conquers all. It sweeps all before it. It is irresistible, ultimately, uh, even as it woos us with its, with its grace and love. And so, uh, you know, there's this, the, the essence of the kingdom is invisible, and that, I think, is actually very encouraging, because it allows us to look beyond what we see in any political moment, in any nation, in, in any time in history, and realize our God reigns, whether it looks like it or not. Um, Christ invisibly sits at the right hand of the Father. The Spirit is invisibly at work in the world, bringing a new creation, and nothing can stop that. Um, so then the question becomes, because that could all seem like a lot of pie in the sky, maybe, the question then becomes, well, okay, so how does the kingdom become visible? Because it does. You know, this stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And this is where um, I, I've just been really helped by some historical writings, um, as well as what the scriptures themselves say about this, that the kingdom of God, the invisible rule of God in the world, becomes visible in, in two major profiles. Uh, one, of course, is the church, and the other is what we could just loosely call the commonwealth, uh, um, kind of various spheres of human life beyond the walls of the church. Um, now, there, there are people, I think, very misguidedly, who want to say that the two kingdoms actually is referring to the church and the state. You've got sort of God's church kingdom and his, you know, his, his civil kingdom. I think that's actually not only un, unbiblical, I think it's, it's really not at all what the Reformers were trying to, to, to get at. It's an invisible kingdom that manifests itself then visibly, and it has a couple of different spheres in which it shows itself. Um, so, you know, looking then at those two visible profiles... Um, God's restoring work among humankind um, most immediately and obviously kind of shows itself uh, in, in, in the life of what we call the Church. Um, the Church is, is, God's, it is, is God's ordained sphere where the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom, is preached. It is administered to, to, to God's people through the Word and through sacraments. And so the, the church becomes a kind of school of faith and love, a school of reconciliation to God by faith and a school of reconciliation to one another in love, where there's no more Jew and Gentile, there's no more slave and free. Um, in some deep sense, there, uh, as far as relationship with God himself goes, it's not even male or female. We are, we are re- reunited to God by faith, we worship God, and then in the context of that worship, we gather around a common table, and we are bound to one another in love. And of course, this is profoundly significant as w- for you know, how political life then works when we come to the Commonwealth. And one of the things I, I guess I just want to say is that it's, it's pretty clear that the, the, the foundational unit of the Church is the household. Um, the Church is kind of the household writ large, if you want to think of it that way. Because in the household, um, throughout Scripture, when you look at the households of God's people, 
you see uh, these two pieces of furniture. You see the altar and you see the table, very prominent pieces of furniture in, in household life in Scripture. The, the altar representing our worship of God, our faith toward Him. He is the king, the high king, right? You know, dad doesn't rule, or mom doesn't rule, or the kids don't rule. God rules. And the table represents the fact that we are all, we all are fed by God. He provides for us. He, he, and we love one another at this table. We work through our differences at this table. And so the family, the household, is, is, is writ large in the church, the family of God, this school of faith and worship, and, and then of love. The other profile of, of the visible kingdom is the commonwealth, because just as the household is the foundation of the church, it's kind of the basic unit of the church, I should say. It's not the foundation, but the basic unit of, 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 of the church. Um, so it is also the basic unit of the commonwealth. And once again, the, the family, then beyond its worship with the people of God in, in the context of the church, the, the family also lives in the world. And the altar and the table are significant here as well, because what do, <laughs> what do businesses and uh, nation-states and you know, neighborhoods and communities need so desperately um, if they're going to be healthy, flourishing places. Well, they need submission to God, right? It needs, you know, we don't want tyranny by any human ruler, nor do we want anarchy where it's every man for himself. And so, you know, the family as the kind of, the basic unit of, of the commonwealth, the basic unit of civil society is a constant reminder that nations, too, and communities, too, are to be under the lordship of the high king. There is to be a public altar, if you like, where we acknowledge that Christ reigns. And also, the, the household table um, it has also its, its larger manifestation, the commonwealth, of what does it mean to have a common wealth, to have a community where, without theft, from some to care for others, we have a true generosity of spirit where all are cared for, where, you know, we are, we are pulling the, the poor and the downtrodden, uh, we are lifting them up and caring for them and ministering to the oppressed and the marginalized and the broken and the weak. And, you know, the, the, a, a healthy family is a kind of mini-model of, of what needs to be uh, so, sort of the whole functional notion of the common good in what we could call the commonwealth. So that's a very fast run-through of kind of the big pieces. Um, and it's just been for me a very enriching and very suggestive model for thinking about, okay, what's it look like then for us in our households and churches to really be excited about seeing God transform commonwealth uh, through the influence of, of the gospel? Yeah, and uh, I think that's all very helpful. Um, the notion comes out as you speak that healthy churches and having that our relationship to Christ and in community with God's people and fellowshipping around the word of God and the table um the sacraments um that flows out into the commonwealth as you put it um that that's that I believe is what I'm getting out of this and it blesses our community and it guides our community so that our communities can have freedom under the lordship of Christ. Right, and I think that right. I think both the the Christian household and the church are just as you said they're beacons of light um, 
to remind humankind that true human well-being is only found where God reigns. It's yeah. not found in what we could call autonomy, you know, the, the self-rule of man. Yeah. That, that's where everything went wrong in the garden, right? Um, but also that, that the rule of God is always going to have this horizontal effect of drawing people together in reconciliation. Mm. Now, this is in stark contrast to something like Sharia law. And you're, you're trained as a lawyer. God called you into the Christian ministry, so you probably have a little more keener understanding of, of these things. Um, how is this different, what you've been describing, than Sharia law? Well, one of the uh, one of the very interesting things about the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a very big topic. Obviously, I will. Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. One of the one of the foundational components of of the gospel, uh, or at least the way the gospel works out in, in life, is justification, uh, being right with God by faith alone. It's not by works that we uh, attain right standing before God, it's by grace. And I think that one of the things, then, that will manifest itself in a truly Christian commonwealth that, that, that openly acknowledges its allegiance to Jesus Christ um, is going to be that it is not ever going to enforce, uh, <laughs> as if this such thing were even possible, enforce uh, conversion to Christianity at sword point. Um, that there is an understanding that, that the gospel proceeds by persuasion, um, so that even even uh, if you had, let's say, a Christian commonwealth that was constitutionally, you know, acknowledged the lordship of Jesus, there would be a a refusal to engage in in, in civil force as a way of sort of uh, tr- trampling those who, who who would have different religious beliefs. And I think that's a pretty big piece of truly Christian uh, political thought and, and, and jurisprudence. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not enough of a scholar to comment. On how that has, how anything analogous has worked out under um, all applications of Sharia law in all places, um, but certainly what you see in, in what is often called um, uh, Muslim, uh, Islamic extremism um, is is uh, an attempt to bring the rule of Allah by violence. Uh, that, at the very least, would would be. Sadly, we Christians have not always done a very good job historically of right. acting according to the, the dictates of our master, but um, that would be one very great difference. Um, that would be, be one place I, I think I'd want to start, is just that that basic component of the gospel. Yeah, and I wanted to raise that because I, I saw some uh, objection someplace in my travels <laughs> online where someone was um, commenting about um, the radio ministry here, and I think it was an old comment, and basically it was accusatory that, you know, oh, this is no different than what the Muslims want to do. No, it's it's hugely different. And and you got at it right here when you talked about um, one of the aspects of a Christian commonwealth is that it does not enforce conversion. There is complete freedom. Um, <laughs> if, a person, <laughs> if a person wants to not believe on God, that's up to them. Well, and this gets back to the invisibility of the kingdom. I mean, it's just simply not possible to enforce an invisible transformation by right. visible means of violence. And, I mean, to be clear, I think that there are uh, very significant variations within uh, the Muslim religion as far as how this would be worked out. But again, sure. there, we've, we're certainly very aware in our time of this, this element that, that really does try to use intimidation and violence 
to um, frighten people into submission. And that that's just not Christian. Yeah, you, you also got me thinking about something, and, and this may may need to spawn into more conversations. But um, I'm thinking, too, if you could give us some examples here quickly, um, some characteristics. What would be some characteristics of a Christian commonwealth? Just real practical things that we would see in the outworking. Um, you, you hinted at economics at one point. Well, so number one, we, we would protect all life. <laughs> we wouldn't kill the unborn. That'd be a very big piece. We would have a deep respect for, for life made in God's image, because at this table, all have a right to life. Um, certainly, when it comes to economics, I, I have become increasingly persuaded that Christian economics has got to, to find ways of supporting the household as an economically sustainable unit. Um, it is so difficult in our current economic situation for let's say, family businesses to operate, uh, whether it's, and we could get into details, but in so many ways, our economic structures favor, you know, these massive global corporations, which are often um, in a, a relationship of mutual support with governmental regulation agencies and so on. Sure. And, and it's, it, is, it is so difficult for a family to survive in some places in this country on one income, uh, which which makes forces all kinds of changes on household you know, life and, and, and structure, uh, let alone trying to run a business, a private business from your home. Um, and there there are people like Alan Carlson and others who have done some very interesting work on just how we might rearrange things economically so that households could actually be able to survive and live out biblical order and, and rear children and, and be economically productive units once again. Um, that, that's, who, who talks about that anymore? Yeah, really. And, and also something comes to mind, Ben, and by the way, we're talking with Pastor Ben Miller of Trinity Church, an OPC congregation in North Central Long Island, and Pastor Ben pastors that church there. Ben, one of the pressures that families feel today is this 24 by 7, and, and, there's so many jobs that require you to work on Sunday, yep. and, and well-meaning Christians that, that do have a conviction that one day in seven is to be totally different, that the Sabbath was made for man, that it's our day of worship. Um, it's so hard to line these two things up. Um, well, that's exactly right, and, and I think that's just another illustration of how really the God with a little g of mammon uh, just so drives, it's all about making money, not even so much now for the individual worker as from often sort of corporate conglomerates and things, um, not, not only running into day, the day of worship of the Lord's Day, but, but running, running families ragged where you have to work such long hours often um, that, that those beautiful things that happen in the home when mom and dad are both there... <laughs> yeah often just it's hard to even find the time, which is just tragic. Yeah, it is. Uh, there's much more to talk about yeah. here, and we probably should pick this up again in another discussion. Yeah. But um, any closing thought for a family that looks at the political scene in our world and say, oh, man, there's almost no choices and everything's going to pot, um, how can we be encouraged going forward? Well, I think I've said this before, and I, I, but I think it bears repeating. Um, our God reigns. 
and he reigns in households that that worship him and in churches that worship him, and he reigns in and through our influence in whatever communities we have. I think one thing is just love the local. Be, be, be as strong and healthy and, and vibrant a household as you can be. Connect to your local church and just serve there in every way you can. Build a relationship with your neighbors, because this is, again... We're not. We're not. It, it's. It's not what we can see of the kingdom that's the most important. It's the fact that, that invisible kingdom is there and it's working in these small things. We should be very encouraged because there God reigns, and it, it's not just. It's not just sort of high flung language. All kingdoms and nations will bow before Him. Amen. Great encouragement today from Pastor Ben Miller, pastor of Trinity Church on Long Island, and Ben. We really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure, Dan. Thank you. And dear listener, join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer. And this broadcast is up on our website as a podcast. Check it out. We're found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. God willing, see you next week. Let your kingdom come And your will be Lead on, O oh God of my